be by way of preparation and it does tie in with, with Palm Sunday. Undoubtedly, many of us have been looking at uh, social media and listening to podcasts and, and reading up about government approaches to dealing with coronavirus and so on. And uh, many pastors and theologians have also made contributions. In fact, John Lennox, a scientist and theologian based in the United Kingdom, has a book which is being published electronically tomorrow and will be published in paperback form on the 13th of April, which is all about a Christian response or a Christian understanding of the coronavirus crisis. It took him a week to write. It's only a fairly small book, 58 pages. I've got my online version ordered and I'm going to read it with great interest when it becomes available tomorrow. So here's a multiple choice question for you. Just pretend you're in class and there's a quiz and this is the question. Which of the following is true? One, God is punishing moral evil using natural evil. Number two, it is the sovereign will of God. Three, God is allowing it, that is the coronavirus crisis. Four, it is evidence of the fallen state of the world. Now, I'm not going to ask you to give me your answer. And in fact, depending on the theological or doctrinal position that you take, any one of these could be true. And I've seen pastors and others writing about this over the last little while. And um, I'm just reading a, me a quick message here. That's all right. No, no crises at the moment. So um, folks, different uh, denominations will actually take a different position. And I thought it would be helpful for us today to have a look at the position which is consistent with the view taken by most evangelical and Pentecostal denominations. Is God punishing moral evil using natural evil? Now, I, I find this an interesting proposition actually because I've noticed uh, quite a lot of um, social media posts coming out of India and uh, African nations which are quoting Old Testament verses about God's wrath being poured out on the wicked. And there is no doubt, of course, that there are lots of scriptures. The prophets spoke about it. They are warned Israel that if Israel continued to disobey God and not follow his commandments, then catastrophe would follow. And what the theme of these uh, scriptures is, is that God will punish moral evil using natural evil and also other moral evils. Now, moral evil is related to the choices people make. So murder, sexual sin, for example, they're, they're types of moral evil. And many people, of course, say God will punish that kind of evil. Natural evil is what we often refer to as natural disasters or acts of God, like massive bushfires as we experienced here in Australia earlier this year, uh, disease epidemics and pandemics like the coronavirus pandemic that we're experiencing at the moment. Now, the objection I have to this particular approach is that if God is using natural evil to punish moral evil, he's killing a lot of Christians in the process. So there are Christians dying of the coronavirus. Now, the problem with this approach from my perspective, and you don't have to agree with me, 
But the problem with this approach from my perspective is that it relies almost entirely on Old Testament scriptures without placing them within a proper New Testament context. You see, God isn't mad at us anymore. He poured out his wrath on Jesus. All of our sin was carried by Jesus to the cross and it was dealt with at the cross. Now there is one aspect which I think we ought to make very clear. And that is if we willfully sin, if we willfully reject God, then we disqualify ourselves from God's provision and protection. So as nations reject God, they move out from under his protection and his provision. And they become open to both moral and natural evil. And I will explain this a little more as we go through these options. The second option here is it is the sovereign will of God. Now this is a very, very strong doctrine in some denominations. And I, I've read very well-known theologians who have vast ministries and a lot of influence who have written about this over many, many years. And their basic theology says that everything that happens both to individuals and to nations is the sovereign will of God and it happens to fulfil some particular purpose of his. So every bad thing that happens, happens to you because of the sovereign will of God and he will use it to teach you a lesson or to test you, to make you grow stronger uh, or similar. Again, the whole doctrine of the sovereignty of God is underpinned mainly by Old Testament verses that are not really placed into a New Testament context. Moreover, this view is not consistent with the notion of a good God in whom there is nothing bad. You see, this view would suggest that when a child is raped or a wife is battered or a friend is murdered, that that is God's sovereign will. And he has a particular purpose in that. Now, personally, I find that extremely difficult to reconcile with the idea that God is a good God. So in this view, the coronavirus pandemic is the sovereign will of God. It exists because it's fulfilling a particular purpose of his. Now, as I argued two weeks ago, God is not up to anything in particular at this time, but he will use it for good. The sovereignty of God doctrine is not the same thing as arguing from Romans 8.28 that God is using it to produce good outcomes. The third option is that God is allowing it. Now, now in a sense, this is true, since God could intervene as sovereign God. However, what loving parent, or grandparent for that matter, allows bad things to happen to their children or their grandchildren? 
We protect our children from bad things. An example of this will illustrate. We were looking after Evangeline while um, Ainsley and David were in hospital and um, having little Abigail. And uh, you might have seen some lovely photos on Facebook during the week. Now, Evangeline is at the stage where she can actually open every door in our house, including the front door. But she doesn't have any road sense. So she's just as likely to open the front door, race down the driveway and out onto the road without looking to see if there are any vehicles coming. Now, if I just sat back and let that happen, she could come to a nasty accident, even perhaps be killed. So what we did to protect her was we went to a hardware store and we bought a special plastic covering for the front doorknob that made it impossible for her to open it. Now, I suppose if she develops strength and, and sits down and works out all the engineering behind it, she could thwart our desire and get out on the road and come to an accident. But it wouldn't be because we were allowing it. We have done everything we possibly can to protect her from the danger. And I believe our God is the same. And that's what we read in Psalm 91. Those of us who live in the shadow of his mighty wings, we can expect to be protected. But if we make a choice to step out from under his protection, then of course, despite the fact that God is doing everything he possibly can to protect us and to keep us safe, we're actually rejecting what he's done and we leave ourselves open to everything that Satan could send our way to rob us and indeed to kill us. The fourth option is that it is evidence of the fallen state of the world. And this is what I believe with all my heart and I believe it's the only sustainable way in which we can understand the whole of the counsel of the word of God. You see, we live in a fallen world. Yes, God is sovereign. That is undeniable biblical truth. However, and I know, Helen, you will appreciate this. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, we see that God delegated sovereignty to humanity. Not all of his sovereignty, but God delegated a portion of his sovereignty to humanity and he's never taken it back. He gave us dominion over all created things. Not over each other, but over all created things. He gave us Dominion. He told us to go forth and to multiply. He told us to replenish the earth. He told us to reign over all that he had created. But of course we know when we read through Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve actually sinned. And one of the things that was a consequence of that sin was that they actually handed over that dominion to Satan. Jesus won it back. That was one of the effects of his death on the cross and his resurrection. He won it back. God has never actually taken away our dominion and authority. It was given up through what we call original sin. Jesus won it back. And the church must now occupy. And I want to refer to 
a theologian who lived during the um, the 19th century, and, and I think we might have lost our our um, connection again. Just let me see if I can fix it up. Yeah, no, I don't quite know what's going on there. But anyway, that's the um, slide we need to be on. I want to refer to a, a tract or pamphlet written by John Charles Ryle, who was an Anglican, oh, I should say Church of England. It was Church of England back then. He was a Church of England Archbishop. He was, in fact, the first ever Archbishop of the city of Liverpool. And he wrote this tract, which was called Occupy Till I Come. And uh, this is actually where Palm Sunday comes into it because the tract was based on Luke chapter 19, verse 13, uh, from the King James Version, which of course was the, the main uh, version of the Bible available at the time he was writing. Now you see, the, the, the background to what, uh, what, what he was writing about was Jesus had been in the house of Zacchaeus and he was just about to tell the donkeys to go and, uh, sorry, the donkeys, well, they might have been donkeys. He was just about to tell the disciples to go find a donkey. And, of course, he rode that donkey into Jerusalem to the adoration of the crowd. So I'm going to read part of Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27 from the New Living Translation. Uh, this is often known as the parable of the miners. Some people refer to it as the parable of the pounds. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, as I mentioned. The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. You see, the mistake that the crowds made on Palm Sunday was that they thought that Jesus was about to establish an earthly kingdom, that he was about to overturn the, um, the rulership of the Romans and the overlordship of, of the priests and that he was going to establish a new kingdom on earth immediately. And that's why the Bible records, he told them a story or a parable to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. And he said this, a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided among them 10 pounds of silver saying, invest this for me while I am gone. Some translations say, do business while, I'm, while I am gone. The King James Version, which John Charles Ryle was using, says, occupy till I come. The parable goes on to say, but his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want him to be our king. And that, of course, is a reference to the crucifixion. Now, I won't go on with the rest of the, the uh, parable. It's very well known. But I want to read a, a short quote from the tract that J.C. Ryle produced. This is what he says. The Lord Jesus bids you occupy. By that he means that you are to be a doer in your Christianity, not merely a hearer 
and professor. He wants his servants not only to receive his wages and eat his bread and dwell in his house and belong to his family, but also to do his work. You are to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. The reference here, Matthew 5 verse 16. Have you faith? It must not be dead faith. It must be worked by love. Bible reference, Galatians 5 verse 6. Are you elect? You are elect unto obedience, 1 Peter 1, 2. Are you redeemed? You are redeemed that you may be a peculiar people zealous of good works, Titus 2, sorry, uh, yeah, Titus 2, verse 14. Do you love Christ? Prove the reality of your love by keeping Christ's commandments, John 14, verse 15. O reader, do not forget this charge to occupy. Beware of an idle, talking, gossiping, sentimental, do-nothing religion. Wow, that's a pretty strong exhortation. And he goes on in the uh, track to say a lot more about that. But in interestingly, many, many years ago, when we were still living in New Zealand, so it would have been around 1990, we listened to a presentation by Derek Prince. And... Um, his whole, his whole thesis was that God moves when we pray. So you see, one of the most important works that we can do as Christians is to pray. We can pray against both moral and natural evil, and indeed it is really our duty and our calling. Bringing heaven to earth is what we do as Christians. God responds to our prayer. And you see, this is part of the dominion that God delegated to us from his own sovereignty way back in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. It was lost through original sin, but it was won back by Jesus Christ. And one of the works that we do is to pray. That's how we occupy till he comes. There is power in prayer. We can pray against the coronavirus. We can pray for wisdom for all of those who are making decisions. And that's why I believe that the best way in which we can understand the coronavirus is option four in that multiple choice question. It is evidence of the fallen state of the world. But you see, we can do something about it because we have the very powerful weapon of prayer. And we should be really encouraged by that. We, we don't have to sit back because God in his sovereignty has decided one day to unleash a coronavirus on the world and then sit back and see how we react. We can actually take up the weapons of prayer and we can make a difference. Now the truth is, one day, God will use evil for his sovereign purposes. And if we read the book of Revelation, we can see that that is the case. Last week, we finished with a slide that looked like this one. The tribulation period, which is uh, written about in Revelation chapters 6 to 18. We've already talked about the seven seals of the book. 
that was in our discussion points for the 13th and 27th of October last year. That's a long time ago, isn't it? But we've already dealt with those in some detail. Then there's the seven trumpets judgments and finally the seven bowl uh, judgments. Sometimes they're referred to as, as vials. So what I want to do quickly is to go through the way in which the tribulation is characterised through the seven seals, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. Now some people argue that these all happen together, that is they happen at the same time. Others argue that they are sequential. And my own leaning is towards a sequential understanding of these descriptions of the tribulation. So first, very quickly, going over the seven seals that we find in Revelation, verse, uh, sorry, Revelation chapter 6 through to chapter 8, verse 5. There are seven seals. The first four seals are clearly associated with what Jesus called the beginning of sorrows. The first seal was a white horse. It's meaning international power, politics, possibly the conqueror, maybe Jesus. Uh, and that aligns with what Jesus was saying in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. There would be wars among nations. The second seal represented by a red horse. Civil war and strife. Wars among kingdoms. The third seal. A black horse. Representing or meaning economic disruption. Perhaps high rates of inflation associated maybe with famines from Matthew 24. The fourth seal represented by a pale horse, that means disease and death. Jesus referred to pestilences in Matthew 24. The fifth seal, cry of the martyrs, this is a period of tribulation when Christians who are alive on the earth at the time are hated by all nations and are persecuted terribly. The sixth seal, cosmic disturbances. Jesus referred to earthquakes in the Olivet Discourse. And finally the seventh seal, meaning silence, and then massive cosmic disturbances. And during this time, the gospel of the kingdom is preached by those who have been converted to Christianity during the tribulation period. Now we dealt with all of that last year and uh, I spent some time last week talking about the Olivet Discourse from Matthew 24 and uh, you can actually download either the, um, the discussion point or the whole service and I sent you details by email last week. Let's move on very quickly to, to the seven trumpets and we seem to have lost our connection again just bear with me we'll sort that out what I've got to do is just stop mirroring and then start mirroring again I think it may have something to do with our wi-fi here at church who knows but anyway seven trumpets these are referred to in Revelation chapter 8 verse 9 through to eleven nineteen. the first trumpet Revelation 8 7 the event here is that the green grass and one third of the trees on the earth are burned up. The second trumpet, Revelation 8, verse 8 to 9, a third of the sea becomes blood and a third of the ships and sea life, all of the sea creatures, are destroyed. The third trumpet, Revelation 8, verses 1 to 11, one third of the waters turn bitter. The fourth trumpet, 
Revelation 8.12, a third of the sun, moon and stars do not shine. So things are happening in the cosmos. The fifth trumpet, Revelation 9 verses 1 to 12, locusts, which bring dreadful, dreadful pain upon people, wield the beast's military power. The beast is also the Antichrist. The sixth trumpet, Revelation 9 verses 13 to 21, a, a, a 200 million person army is established. One third of humanity is killed. Then in the seventh, the seventh trumpet, Revelation 11, 15 to 19, there is untold disaster and pain on the earth and the kingdoms of earth are overturned. The kingdom of God is declared. Moving on quickly to the seven bowls. Again, we've got this problem with, with um, actually getting things to, um, to, to mirror properly. So we'll see how we go. There we go. There's the, um, the seven bowls. This, you'll find this referred to in Revelation 16, uh, virtually the whole of that chapter. The first bowl of God's wrath is Revelation 16, verse 2. When sores afflict those who have the mark of the beast. Now, um, Andrew, thank you for sending me that reference to um, Greg Laurie's discussion of the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is something which is given to people um, through the actions of the Antichrist and um, if you don't have the mark of the beast you won't be able to engage in economic activity of any kind. And so people who are Christians who decide not to take the mark of the beast they'll be totally shut out from economic and therefore social life. And we might talk a little bit more about that later on. Pardon me. <clears throat> so the first bowl of the wrath of God saws afflict those who have the mark of the beast and to worship his image. The second bowl, Revelation 16 verse 3, the sea turns to blood, all sea creatures die. Remember, if we go back to the trumpets, a third of the sea creatures died. This time they all die. The third bowl, Revelation 16 verses 4 to 7, Rivers turn to blood, and this is a punishment for the martyrs. There'll be a lot of martyrs during the period of tribulation. The fourth bowl, Revelation 16, verse 8 to 9. Humanity is scorched by great heat from the sun, but nevertheless those who reject the Lord blaspheme God. Despite all of the calamity, there are people on earth who refuse to bow down to God and they blaspheme him. The, the fifth, sixth and seventh bowls are often referred to as the three woes. The fifth bowl is the first row, woe, Revelation 16 verses 10 to 11. The beast's kingdom is afflicted with darkness and unbelievable pain. The sixth bowl, Revelation 16 verses 12 to 16. The Euphrates river dries up making it possible for armies to gather at Armageddon. And then the seventh bowl, Revelation 16, verses 17 to 21, the greatest earthquake in human history. Never in the whole of human history has there been an earthquake as great as this. Hailstones fall from heaven. They're 40 kilograms each. Still, the people 
blaspheme God. Wow. And you know what? Just through that very, very quick uh, resume there, you know, you probably don't get a feel for how dreadful all of this is. But actually, folks, there is some comfort for us because we won't suffer God's wrath. And we won't suffer God's wrath because of Jesus. And this is the whole point about the rapture. Now, I won't really have time to get into the rapture today, of course, but that's something we will do next week. But the weight of biblical evidence suggests that those of us who are Christians today, we will be taken out of the tribulation. We will be gone before the tribulation takes place. The Christians who are persecuted will be those who come to the Lord during the tribulation period. And see, part of the sovereign purpose of God in bringing about this moral and uh, natural evil is, in a sense, the last opportunity for people who are alive at the time to become followers of Jesus Christ. Now, not everybody believes in what we call a pre-tribulation rapture. However, if you don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, I think I will be able to convince you, based on the weight of biblical evidence, that those of us who are Christians will be protected from the tribulation. We will be protected from the wrath of God because, you see, the wrath of God that would have been directed to us was taken by Jesus at the cross. And this is what we celebrate every Sunday and what we celebrate particularly at this season of Easter. So we're going to take communion now and I hope you've got everything ready uh, uh, for communion. And our passage is 1 Corinthians 11.26 and I'm reading from the Passion Translation. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are retelling the story, proclaiming our Lord's death until he comes. And the story there refers to the whole story of his victory over death, his victory over sin. And just remember this as we're sharing in communion, the nobleman who is spoken of in the parable of the miners is Jesus. On Palm Sunday, the people believed that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to overturn the Romans who ruled Israel at the time. They thought he was going to overturn the rule of the, the priests who were making life so difficult for the average person living in Israel at the time. They were wrong because Jesus was going away and he was actually ushering in the age of the church and as J.C. Ryle says we are required by God to occupy what using the miners is not just about an economic return through prayer we have the power to change things. Because as Derek Prince says, although he doesn't understand why, God 
responds when we pray. And I would like to suggest that the reason is that God has delegated a portion of his sovereignty to us. And that's what we see in Genesis 1 verses 26 to 28. So as we take communion today, let us remember not just the story of the victory that Jesus has over death and over sin, but also the way in which we've been empowered and given authority by God way back in the Garden of Eden. We have authority, and today we have that authority through Jesus Christ to bring about change through our prayer. So let's eat, and I'm just going to switch over to the, um, the camera if I can. So just bear with me for a moment or two. I need glasses for this. And let me just make sure that we, um, we've got our camera working. Hey, how's that, eh? You'll see us at last. So look, Jeanette and I are just going to share in uh, communion. You might want to pop this just down there on top of the computer. So we're just going to take our small cracker, just remembering the authority that we have through Jesus Christ in a crisis like the coronavirus crisis. We can make a difference through prayer and Christians all over the world are making a difference. On Palm Sunday, a lot of people made a mistake because they believed that Jesus was about to establish a kingdom on earth. But he actually left us to do something so much better, to establish the kingdom of heaven. And right now, our job is to bring heaven to earth. And as we take communion today, we are being empowered to do that. So let's take communion together. The bread or the cracker. And let's take the cup and remember the blood that Jesus shed establishing the new covenant, that covenant of grace. A covenant under which we are empowered to rule and to reign through prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.